0: Welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Katie Daly and me, I'm Howard Parker. Kristen Scott Benson is no stranger to awards and accolades. She's been named IBMA's Banjo Player of the Year five times, won IBMA's Entertainer of the Year award and a Grammy nom with her band The Graskills. She's also a member of a very exclusive group of banjo players as she received the 2018 Steve Martin Award for excellence in bluegrass and banjo, only one of 10 banjo players to date to receive this honor. In her chat with Katie Daly, Kristen talks about her road to the banjo, her role as a banjo teacher and educator, her time with the Graskills, and her involvement in a wonderful project, Bluegrass Spartanburg. Here's Kristen Scott Benson and Katie Daly.
1: Well, that was certainly uh, a surprise that came from nowhere. Uh, For anyone who isn't familiar, the comedian-actor Steve Martin is a banjo player, and we are all very grateful that he fell in love with the banjo and not some other instrument because he has a heart for uh, music and a heart for the instrument, and uh, he just basically set up an award that uh, recognizes one banjo player a year. And it's uh, it can be old-time call hammer, it can be uh, bluegrass three-finger style. So uh, I was well aware of the award, but I certainly never thought I was going to win it. But the coolest part for me of that uh, story is that um, Bail Fleck and Allison Brown and Noam Pakelney and Abigail Washburn, uh, Washburn and also Gary West, who is uh, the co-founder of Compass Records along with Allison Brown. Uh, the five of them were the ones who uh, gave the award to me and surprised me with that. So, you know, I've I've said before, the greatest privilege of being able to play music, I think, is the coolest part for me is just uh, getting to know people that you look up to and, and you think about these magnificent musicians who inspired you when you were y- young and you get to know those people. And uh, that's really the most surreal part of any of it. So, the award was fantastic, but the people who gave it to me, being in their company, I think is the neatest part.
2: So what did they, I thought I heard uh, Bela invited you to Nashville to talk about, you know, an upcoming camp or something. You, you you, didn't know you were receiving this, did you?
1: That's right. He and I and Allison Brown had recorded a uh, banjo trio song for a Daly and Vincent uh, Christmas special. And, uh, I'm not even sure that thing has come out, but so I went under the guise of doing that song and was really grateful that I, I mean, that was enough of a treat right there just to get to do a, a banjo trio, uh, with the two of them. And then the next day, so I was in town for that. And, and he said, Hey, I, I've been lucky enough to teach at his, uh, Blue Ridge banjo camp, which has happened twice and is going to be canceled in 2020 because of the virus. But, um, I got to do it the first two years. And he said, why don't you come by in the morning, and we'll talk about camp. And I said, sure, let's do that. So that's the reason I was there, or the reason I thought I was there. And then he said, I got to go upstairs. I'll be right back. And when he came back, the five of them were together, and uh, they let me know. And it, it was certainly a, a great, great
2: surprise. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. I think it's you are one of ten who have won this award so far. Yeah, I think that's right. Wow. So your uh, main job, should I say, is uh, playing with the Grascals, and you've been with them how many years now? Uh, twelve years. I, I joined in '08. hmm And uh, so because of this pandemic, and we are recording this on April 24th, uh, a lot of your dates have been canceled or postponed or rescheduled. So uh, what are you doing to use up your time uh, at home?
1: Well, I, I consider myself extremely blessed in, just in general to get to teach. You know, most bluegrass musicians have a day job. That's what we call it, what you do during the week. Because most of us uh, play on the weekends. So through the week, uh, the vast majority of musicians have something that they do. And for me, that's turned into teaching lessons, and it it's grown into a real passion for me. So I was very uh, lucky because I had essentially a day job uh, that I could grow. And and I had been um, on a wait list with folks for, Uh, several years. uh, I've been collecting information from people who wanted lessons, but I couldn't teach them because I was too full. So uh, once the virus hit and all the shows canceled, I was able to reach out to that list and kind of fill in the gaps that way. So I'm not playing any shows. No one is, but I'm doing a whole lot more teaching right now. And it's all online? It is. Yeah. I mean, I, I do have a few, not very many, but a few local students who Uh, come in person, but of course, they've transitioned to online as well. And it's Mm -hmm. funny, I have a joke with my husband that any local student who Skypes even one time, my joke is we'll never see them again. Because once you realize, even if your commute is a 10-minute commute, once you realize you can still have your lesson and not do that, hardly anyone ever comes back to the house. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how many of the local people who've gone to Skype because of the virus, how many of them actually come back to the house again. It'll be interesting to see.
2: All right. You mentioned your husband, who is Wayne Benson. He's the mandolin player with Third Time Out. And both you and Wayne are certified instructors of the Pete Wernick method of teaching.
1: I it seems like the way that came about, I reached out to Pete for a teaching question. I had a student um or a group of students that I that I was really interested in had he encountered this problem and, and I had tried a multi just a lot of things to help Uh, these folks get over this one issue. And I I just didn't have a good remedy for it. So I reached out to him and a couple other people and said, hey, you guys are, uh, you know, guru teachers, what's your remedy for this? And uh, that led to us just having a conversation. And he said, it sounds like you and Wayne really have a heart um, for growing the music and for trying to help people play it, which is really the lifeblood of our music is uh, getting people uh, interested in it. It's such an accessible music that, uh, you know, if you can create a jammer, that's probably going to be a, a fan for life and a supporter for life and a musician for life. You know, they can enjoy it just like we do. So uh, I think he just spotted some traits that he looked for in his Warning Method teachers, and that led to us doing a couple of his camps.
2: So I have never done an online lesson, and I, I'm not sure if other people are sort of hesitant about it or they've signed up yet. So I'd like to run over a few things. How would I prepare myself to do an online lesson of any kind? How do I, I'm specifically what kind of equipment do I need? And how do I um, classify myself in the, in, am I a beginner? Am I intermediate? Am I advanced? How do I discuss with the teacher what it is I'm looking for for the lessons? Can you steer me in the right direction on any of that?
1: Yeah, those are all great questions, and I can just uh, speak, you know, personally to my experience. The only thing you need is any device. It can be a phone as a small screen, but that's really all you need is a phone. If I'm on the road and need to do a lesson with someone, I can do it on my phone and have many times Um, ideally you'd have a little bit bigger screen just so you can see better, but any device works and you just need a a good internet connection. So you're looking for, uh, as high speed as you can get. Now, with that being said, a lot of people are still on, uh, I guess DSL cable. So they're not quite as fast as like a cable, um, cable modems and, and that kind of infrastructure, but it, it still works pretty well. Everything these days in the age of streaming Netflix and, Prime Video and all, everybody has pretty decent internet connections. So that's all you need. And then uh, for me, I I find that students do one of two things. They grossly overestimate their ability, or much more commonly, they grossly underestimate their ability. So I really don't even look for a classification from them as uh, of beginner, intermediate, or advanced. I just, um, once we log on, I you know, I get their banjo story, what attracted them to it. And I, I ask a few key questions, and that really helps me gauge where they're at. Um, yeah, one of the things I'll ask people is, uh, you know, of course, how long have you been playing? How have you primarily learned? All those background questions. But then I'll say, what's the last thing you learned? So that that tends to be among the most uh advanced things that they're doing of course their newest material and then i'll say that's great how would you play backup to that because i discover that it's just the biggest gap in most people's banjo playing is they don't know what to do when they play backup and if you just look at it's a very you know common uh problem but look at a song; you have three and a half minutes, and you may get the solo twenty seconds. So the other three minutes you're playing backup. Yet we devote the complete uh, opposite amount of time in our learning uh, to lead. So it, it's just a you know a mystery to me why mo- more people uh, don't really focus on. Uh, Teaching backup and and as students learning backup. So uh, that's the next thing I'll do. And if they can play backup pretty well, that tells me they've probably jammed. They probably have some experience playing with other people. And then I'll ask them, this is a huge clue for me, I'll ask them who their favorite banjo players are and who are their favorite bands. And that tells me more about stylistically what they would like to do than having them play because their heart may be in an entirely different area than the the teaching material that they've had exposure to. So for instance, you could have uh, someone who is, you know, really a melodic banjo player at heart, but the teacher they've been with or the online resources they've used has been totally Scruggs playing. So if their favorite banjo player is Bill Keith, but they haven't played anything melodic for me, then that's a big clue that that might be an area we could do. And and what I find is more often than not people aren't clear beginner, I guess beginner could be clear, but they're not clearly intermediate or advanced or in the middle of that. They're a mixture. So on stroke style maybe they're intermediate. On melodic playing maybe they're ahead of that. Maybe they're a bit more advanced that way. On backup, they may be a beginner. So it's it's really, you kind of have to look at each playing, uh, each area individually. And then my goal is just to fill in the gaps. Now, with all mm-hmm. that being said, I would really encourage people not to worry about that, just to to get online with someone, find a teacher. Now you don't have to have access, local access to teachers. You can go online and learn from anyone that teaches. So I would just say don't be intimidated. I've heard several accounts of people saying, well, I want to get a little better, and then I'm going to try to get lessons, you know, with Tony Trishka or Ned Lubarecki or whatever. <laughs> and it's like, well, no, that's you don't have to get better. It's come as you are. And then if if they're a good teacher, they'll discover the holes in the playing. And you just attempt to fill in the holes one at a time and and try to make a complete well-rounded banjo player, not just someone who can regurgitate 20 tunes of tab.
2: I see. So what do you recommend uh, uh, once a week, uh, twice a month, I don't know, or half-hour lesson or hour lesson? What do you recommend?
1: It's different for everybody. For the beginners, I usually uh, say 30 minutes is better, smaller chunks more frequently. So for kids, I tend to do 30 a week. Um, For adults, I tend to do an hour every other week. It's more convenient for adults, maybe not right now, it doesn't matter, but generally, if they can only block it out every other week, that's better for them. So kids, younger people, uh, 30 a week, older people, uh, an hour a week. And if, I, if you're advanced, and, or not advanced, but if you can just retain a lot of information and you have time to devote to it, I do have a uh, few people who are an hour every week. So it's really wow. up to you and how much time you have.
2: Now, if you're on Skype, uh, and are you playing together or because wouldn't there be some delay there in the transmission?
1: Now you can't play together. So what I usually do for that is um, everybody records a different way. So that's another piece of the equation we should talk about is how are you going to record the lesson? Because nobody can remember all of this. And when I was young and was taking lessons, of course, it was in person. And at the very end, you know, uh, my teacher would just play whatever we had play, we had learned. He would just uh, play it slowly and then play it up to speed and I took that home. So that's still a good good way to do it. You can uh, hold your cell phone up to the screen, or you can uh, do, uh, Skype has an, an in-house recorder. You just hit start recording. Some people record all 60 minutes of the lesson, and they wanna keep it all. And if you've got the hard drive space, and or external hard drive, you don't mind devoting to that, uh, then you can keep all of the lessons and archive them that way. And then a lot of people um, will even set up maybe a video camera. I've seen that a lot where you've got an old video camera you used to put it behind the screen. So I don't know, you know, how you transfer that to something digitally. But uh, the point is there are a lot of different methods of recording. And then if they need tab, uh, you know, I just scan the tab and email it after the lesson. But you can't play together. That's the only thing. So the other option to get around that that I, that I do is... Uh, there's a thing called Skype video recording, uh, video messages, sorry. So I have to log off. You can't do it on the call. But I can leave video messages for them. And this is especially valuable if they have a connection that isn't great. Because if they're videoing um, within Skype or if they have their cell phone, that's a, they're getting it after the connection. So when I do a Skype video message, it's just me and my computer, and then that's sent straight to them, and there are no connection issues. And I'll usually, uh, if it's someone who's doing pretty good, I'll do a guitar track for them or something like that where they, they get something from me uh, that lets them play along to simulate that because that is one area that you can't, uh, that you can't do. You can't play together.
2: Mm. Well, uh, if someone is interested in contacting you for uh, online lessons, well, how, well, how would they get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, they can email me through the website. Uh, my website is uh, Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-I-N. If you do E-N, I never get it. So K-R-I-S-T-I-N at K-S-B, Kristen Scott K S B KSBbanjo.com. And you'll get
2: back to them within the week?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, hopefully before that. But sometimes it is a week. And, you know, I, I do have um, a waiting list a lot of the time. So the way I get to those folks is um, I was able to take a bunch of them on now that the virus has hit. But I uh, will do say I'm home on a Friday and not normally I'm usually gone on Friday. So I'll say, hey, everybody, I'm home on a Friday. I'm teaching, you know, from 12 to 4 Eastern time. Anyone want a lesson? And then they can just sign up that way where you're not committing to every week, but you still get a lesson here or there if you want it.
2: And then they pay via PayPal or something?
1: Yeah, they can either mail checks, although hardly anyone does that anymore. It's usually just all PayPal. So it works great. I mean, we, we're so lucky that uh, with everything that's going on right now that we can uh, communicate this way and learn this way.
2: Well, I'll bet you probably uh, learned by slowing down the records from 33 the or from 70, yeah. well, how, however it was. You, is that the way you learned?
1: Or Not did you quite. Have... I, I was a little bit post vinyl. So uh, my parents had vinyl, but when I started learning, it was all CDs. So, uh, what I would do is uh, it it was actually harder to slow down at that point, um, but I mainly learned. I played with records all the time. I figured out as much as I could. Uh, and then shortly after I began playing, uh, we got technology it was uh i had a thing gosh what i think it was called a Riff-O-Matic was the name of my machine and it did it was just a device that did what the amazing slow downer does where i could uh plug any audio source uh, into it record a bit and then it would slow down it was a little box that you had to carry around to do that so i was able to slow things down that way but the biggest way i learned was through my teacher and then playing with records and i would get as close as i could and he would check it uh so i was a little bit post-final now everything has changed i mean even youtube you just slow down your youtube video within youtube you can do that just clicking on settings and it's uh just the accessibility is it blows my mind so no longer are you only exposed to the people you can see live and you know, within 30 seconds, someone could sample Bill Monroe and Chris Beely from their bedroom, and used to be you would have had to seek out events that each of them, you know, were at, and you may not even know about them. So it's really created this monster population of young musicians and our music.
2: Well, speaking of young musicians, if I remember correctly, you started on, uh, in the marching band in high school, and what were you playing? Yeah, I was a trombone player in school. Ah, okay. And how did that transition to uh, banjo come about?
1: Well, I was originally, uh, as a little kid, I started playing mandolin because my dad liked bluegrass and my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, so my mom's uh, dad was a professional player. He uh, is half of the duet Whitey and Hogan and uh, they were part of a larger group called the Briarhoppers. They were actually pretty huge in the 40s on WVT in Charlotte, North Carolina. So, um, you know, I had it kind of on both sides and was always exposed to it and always loved it. So I started playing mandolin when I was a really little girl because we had one, you know, and it it was small. And uh, then I I guess I would have started trombone when I was in middle school, whenever kids start that. And then... Um and then i got started playing banjo for real when I was about thirteen. I tried a little bit before that, but within we had just gotten a banjo and then our house burned down and uh that was not a high priority to replace so i didn 't really get to get started on it until I was about thirteen and uh And then it just consumed me. You know the other instruments oh. just kind of faded away.
2: Wow, what a tragedy that was. How old were you when your house
1: burned down? Yeah, I was probably nine or 10, I think, when that Mm. happened. And uh, we had also just gotten a piano. Someone gave it to us. And I was so excited about piano lessons. I wanted to do that so bad. And uh, obviously, that got destroyed as well, and I never got around to that. So, But, you know, it's one of those interesting things how people find the instrument that that just captures them and for me it was banjo. Once I started playing it, uh I was just obsessed
2: and just
1: you know, everything, every other interest just gradually faded away.
2: Alright. So do you have banjo acquisition syndrome? How many banjos <laughs> do you own?
1: I I really don't. I'm not I'm not too bad about that. I have three and uh goodness that seems like enough. I tell you what I really want is uh some of these cool lower voiced banjos like uh the john hartford uh Deering makes one of those i think uh uh baila plays one called the Missing link you know there's all these different um banjos there and they're bigger and they have longer necks, some of them, and they they're you know, all the way down to C or some of them, I think, are tuned in E. And I'm very mm-hmm. attracted to those. I, I really would like to have some of those. I think it would help me uh, write music. I think it may be an interesting voice to pair with mandolin, which my husband plays. So um, that's what I kind of have my eye on right now. But I've got an old Gibson, a pre-war Gibson, and I've got a chief banjo, and then I have a late 80s Gibson uh, three an rb3 so you can only play one at a time i figure that's plenty
2: how many do you take on the road
1: i just take one one i usually play yeah i usually play my old one and we travel in a van so there's not a whole lot of room we had a bus for years and even then though i only took one but we don't have the room to take any extra than that right now
2: you've been involved in a organization that's right near your home. And I think it's called Spartanburg Bluegrass, or is it Bluegrass Spartanburg? It's called Bluegrass Spartanburg. Tell me about it. Yeah, this is something
1: I'm really excited about and and, um, just proud of. And it's one of those things that uh, grew from a student, actually. There was a guy coming to get lessons um, who said, hey, we're – we're thinking about uh, starting this group called Bluegrass Spartburg. In fact, we didn't even have the name the first few meetings. And what it is, is uh, uh, the town that I live in has a Philharmonic. And there's, it was originally called the Music Foundation of Spartburg, And they were the umbrella uh, association that dealt with funding the Philharmonic and supporting and promoting it. And it just so happened that, There was a group of uh, people on the board and a group of supporters who all realized they were uh, bluegrass fans. And there had been a guy in town, his name was Andrew Babb, and he had started promoting bluegrass shows just on his own. And uh, we have a great performing arts center called Chapman uh, Performing Arts Center, and he had done quite well bringing in some bluegrass fans into town. So these guys just realized there was a common interest there. So they said, What if? We we created a committee under the Philharmonic's umbrella and started promoting bluegrass. So that's what they did, and they just invited me. It's completely nonprofit, and they invited me to sit in on their meetings, just kind of as a, you know, as a resident musician, sort of to give perspective that way. And I've been astounded at the progress they've made, and we are very successfully. And uh, and all of these folks tend to be business people who have been very successful at whatever they do. They're really good at what they do. And they just applied those uh, business skills to promoting bluegrass music. And it's amazing how when you promote the music in a sophisticated, smart way, uh, you end up attracting crowds. You know, there are a lot of people and not, uh, you know, it, listen, any... Non-mainstream music, there's always risk involved, and I totally get that. Uh, but I do think sometimes that we lack uh, the know-how of promoting shows on a on a with a with an actual agenda and a very intentional plan. And these folks brought that to the table, and they've done a, a great job. And I also really feel like this model it would be easily replicated. I think there are a lot of uh, small towns, because Spartanburg is in a big town, I guess it would be a mid-sized town, uh, who may have organizations already set up, and they have bluegrass fans within those organizations. And what they've done is not that hard to do. If you just get motivated about it and, and you organize, It it's pretty doable. So I feel like musicians, the number one problem we have is uh, lack of shows. You know, the more shows we can play, the better off we are. If every town had a Bluegrass Spartanburg, uh, our touring lives would be so much better. And I love how they treat the Bluegrass musicians that come to town. They just are very hospitable, and they treat them with a lot of respect. And uh, the the facility is great. And I, I would just love to see more of these. Every Bluegrass musician I know wishes for more of these type shows.
2: How many concerts does Bluegrass Spartanburg Bluegrass Concerts do they put on a year?
1: Um, so far Bluegrass Spartanburg has put on only four shows a year and they're just about to add a fifth. So, mm-hmm. um that that's their series and they announced the series at uh, you know in the fall and you can buy tickets to all four shows or each one individually. And they're about to add a fifth, I believe, in uh, 2021. And you know one other cool thing about them? Like I'm just, I went to the website. So the the shows this season are Lonesome Riverman, Sierra Hall, Fireside Collective, and Joe Mullins. I mean, you gotta love that. It's like, a, it's like every faction of the big tent bluegrass music is represented there
2: right and these are big these are major national bands also
1: yeah definitely yeah they they haven't brought in they've had everyone you know from Rhonda vincent to uh to but Della may so the, they've gone from the more progressive style all the way to joe mullen super traditional and and then Baylin Abbey. i mean they they are really uh they attempt to be we call it uh we classify it as roots and branches we try to have Two Roots Acts and Two Branches Acts. And we build them that way. We have a a logo that kind of um, implies whether it's a Roots or a Branches show. And we talked about the crossover between you know, the Philharmonic and Bluegrass Spartanburg. Well, we're also trying to cross over people who love Joe Mullins with people who need to hear Sierra Hull and vice versa. So we're also trying to bring in um, some of the, you know, jam band audiences were trying to get them to come to see Rhonda Vincent. So uh, not that she needs the help by any means, but you get the point stylistically. Do they have another aspect to their organization? Yeah, so um, one of the mo- most ambitious shows they decided to do was to bring in Bail Fleck and Abigail Washburn to town. And, you know, we just really saw that that show as an opportunity because remember the group Bluegrass Barber grew from the Philharmonic and we thought well Bela is a perfect artist to bring in who could bridge those those two genres and maybe he could do a bluegrass show one night and then or an acoustic show and then the next night play with the Philharmonic because he's written concertos and he's obviously just such a virtuoso. So they decided to do that. Well, then we had to figure out how to pay for it, because even if we sold everything out, we couldn't quite afford it. So they said, well, what if we tried to get some grants? What are some projects we could do uh, that would help fund this event? And we decided that it would be great to kind of warm the community up and and uh, just grow awareness of the banjo in general to get ready for that show. So. We did a thing. It turned into a multifaceted effort called Discovering the Banjo, and it had many pieces. We partnered with a few after-school groups um, who have traditional arts uh, as a club, so we have you know the pack jam is the i believe the packet Appalachian musicians we have yams young Appalachian musicians so we partnered with some of their groups uh we also um did a a program where i went to an inner city kid, uh elementary school and worked with their third graders for a week and i i was so moved by it because um you know it was a really it was a whole bunch of little black kids that had no idea the banjo had come from Africa, and we screened part of Baylor's documentary, Throw Down Your Heart, which traces the roots there. And then at the end of that week, we were able to bring in um, uh, Trey Wellington and also a a young um, guy. I cannot remember his name right now. Cameron is his first name, but he's an 11-year-old banjo player. And uh, both of those guys came and played uh, the school, for the whole school on Friday with me. So I got to spend... A lot of time with the third graders and teach them about the banjo and where it came from and how it had changed over the years and what are the different styles. and Deering uh, donated a couple of uh, good time banjos, so they got to get their hands all over the banjo. Bluegrass Martinburg sponsored some scholarships to... teach school age children to give them banjo lessons through Pac-Jam. Uh, we had an essay contest for Throw Down Your Heart, where kids could write about what they learned from the film. And uh, we did public screenings where we had, you know, 120 to 150 people show up to these screenings to watch Bayless film about the banjos. So it just, see, that, that moves me. And uh, I'm so passionate about the instrument and those kinds of opportunities send me through the roof so it was almost like the whole upstate of South Carolina was all about banjo there for a little while and then here come Bala and Abby to do you know their amazing show that they do so Bluegrass Spartanburg has turned into way more than just a show promoter it's becoming this whole force in the community that grows bluegrass and the banjo in our area
2: And did they also uh, expand to uh, uh, include jazz? They
1: do, yeah. They have a thing called espresso, and uh, they design it so people can leave work and just stop into uh, the cultural center and watch like a 45-minute concert. I believe they serve drinks right before it. And the whole idea is in an hour, hour and a half, you can stop by on your way from work, home from work, you get to see, you know, some pretty amazing jazz players that they bring in from all over the place and then go home. So it's espresso. It's just something nice and quick and short. Um, so it, it's really, here's what's required. You know, if there's any music infrastructure at all as far as a foundation or an association or anything about any kind of music, and then you can find a group of people within that group who are willing to devote some time to it, um, you can do this sort of thing, and it, we've just been pretty overwhelmed with the positive response, and their ultimate goal, they have a vision of one day doing an outdoor festival in Spartanburg, and I see it happening sooner rather than later, because of the great success they're having with these shows.
2: Well, one thing is that they don't compartment, like you. Could, if you only like the Philharmonic, you're not ever going to like bluegrass, and vice versa, or you're not going to be interested in jazz if you like bluegrass. I mean, I think we have um, put formatted music to the nth degree, and we, mm-hmm. short, we shortchange our audience.
1: I agree, but and that's one of their main goals. It's not just to bring the Philharmonic folks over to bluegrass. They want to bring the bluegrass people over to the Philharmonic, and that was one of the biggest reasons they wanted to bring in an artist to do both, is they they also sold that package as a package. So, in other words, um, somebody who, say, is a season ticket holder for the Philharmonic, you know, could tack on a little bit more and get to see Bela at the performing arts center the night before and vice versa. So they're, they're being very smart about trying to integrate the audiences and it's working. And then with the jazz shows as well, you know, jazz has a lot in common with bluegrass, whether people realize it or not. And uh, people who like free or formed music and improvisation and, uh, you know, really high level uh, instrumental music, that That is a shared uh, set of traits between jazz and bluegrass. So uh, they saw an opportunity there as well. And the the bottom line is if you're a music lover, and these guys are, are really all philanthropists, they have uh, hearts for service, and they want to see, they realize our slogan is listen where you live because they realize that an essential part of a thriving place to live is a thriving art scene. So they're all about growing it in all these areas. And it just so happens that bluegrass was one of the ways they decided to do that. But I think that it could be uh, copied and, and put into place without a whole lot of effort, a lot of different places, and just from a, a practical standpoint as a musician, I would love to see that happen.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, you you had learning um in uh experiences there with you know bala and all but do you have actual lessons available to the people at the uh facility
1: they do not so far um that was one of the questions they had we we had a, a definite spike in um interest in banjo lessons after that weekend and the couple of weeks leading up to it um, and we were like well how are we going to handle this now and so far for young people the best way seems to be to direct people to the after school groups that already exist uh that they're already using but that's it's a definite um issue and it's one that we're trying to to still figure out and you know what we did we we one of the donated banjos from Deering went to the school Um, that I spent my time with, Cleveland Academy is the name of the school, and uh, their teacher got an online teaching resource and the banjo. And ironically, um, Trey, I mentioned the two banjo players who came and and did a concert with me, Trey's first exposure to banjo, uh, seeing one in person, was at his school. And same thing with Cameron. Um, He signed up for Pac-Jam. And so their, their introduction of banjo was through a public school system. So I think that's really, um, you know, an area where we could grow awareness for banjo and bluegrass. If, uh, if we just have some people with an interest in it, then they can start something like this, and it, it can take off in certain areas.
2: Well, these people sound like they, they know the way to do it and are being thoughtful about it. If someone wanted to find out more about uh, that organization, do you have a website they can go to?
1: We do. I'm pretty sure it's bluegrassspartanburg.org, but it could be bluegrassspartanburg.com. I'm not entirely sure, but it's definitely <laughs> bluegrassspartanburg. Just Google that, and then you'll find the website.
2: All right. That sounds well worth checking out. And uh, But before I let you go, let me ask you about the Graskills. You have a relatively new album out on the Mountain Home Music and it's called Straighten the Curves and has that been released yet? Yeah, it is. Uh
1: recently released, but you know the landscape for releasing music has greatly changed. Uh, recently as well in the landscape of streaming. So we've actually had singles coming out for that record for quite a while, but the actual album uh, released as a, a group of songs is pretty
2: new. And uh, and your new uh, newest member, Chris Davis, he's only recording? He is, yeah. Chris, I go back a
1: long time with Chris. We were in a band, or a couple bands, uh, many years ago. And, uh, it came time to, to hire someone, uh, when Terry Eldridge retired, we're like, gosh, who can we get? And Chris came up, uh, in conversation and he's doing a great job.
2: Great. Well, that's wonderful. And hopefully the, uh, everyone will be able to get back on the road and into their concert series, um, sooner than later, I hope.
1: That's right.
2: Well, Kristen, you have got a lot of things going, uh, and, I thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about teaching and Bluegrass Spartanburg and the latest going on with the Graskills. You and Wayne, take care and uh, stay safe and we'll see you out there on the Bluegrass Trail soon. Thanks, Katie.
0: That was Katie Daly talking with Kristen Scott Benson. More about Kristen at ksbbanjo.com. More about the Graskills at bluegrassgulls.com, and more about Bluegrass Spartanburg at bluegrassspartanburg.com. Bluegrass Stories is hosted on soundcloud.com and can be streamed on SoundCloud, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and katiedaily.com. As always, thanks for listening to Bluegrass Stories.